Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's been a goal of progressive advocates for years, creating so-called safe injection sites, where addicted drug users can find a safe space and clean needles, as well as treatment in the case of overdoses. Supporters say these facilities save lives. But when a bill to legalize safe injection pilot programs came before Governor Newsom to sign, he vetoed it, citing concern over unintended consequences. But as we'll hear today, that veto may not be the end of the story. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. The governor's decision has been met with outrage by many advocates, but even after the sudden veto, San Francisco is still leaving the door open to moving forward on creating such a site on its own. So there is a lot still left to happen in this story. And to help us understand where we might be headed, we have two guests to speak with us today. Uh, Welcoming on first, Laura Thomas. She is the director of HIV and harm reduction policy at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which operates substance abuse treatment programs in the city. Laura Thomas, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also going to welcome on Washington Post staff writer, Meryl Cornfield, who was among the first reporters to tour the first legal safe injection site in New York City. Meryl Cornfield, welcome to you as well. Thank you for having me. So uh, it's a big debate that we're going to be wading into today. On the one hand, supporters of safe injection sites argue that they've reduced the risk of overdoses as well as the risk of uh, infections from contaminated needles. Uh, and, And on the other side, there's this fear that, you know, creating a space for drug use encourages more drug use. Uh, and I think I think a place for us to start our conversation, Meryl, if you could, uh, you, you've been to uh, safe injection sites in the course of your reporting. Tell us a little bit about what goes on inside, just so that our listeners can picture what this is like. The first thing to know about these sites is they're not necessarily special. There's drug use happening across the country, um, often in public spaces like parks, near kids, 
And what these sites do is they contain the drug use within these supervised sites where people can um, take various drugs. Um, the term I like to go by, I think is the most accurate, is supervised consumption sites because you know people are taking all sorts of drugs. When I first went there, um, I think if I could sum it up in one word, it was a clinical environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I walked in and there were um, the supervisors there who are trained to handle medical situations like overdoses. And um, they were keeping a watchful eye on the participants. And all around me in this room were desks set up with all the medical equipment that would be required to take care of someone, clean needles, um, test fentanyl testing strips. And um, these people were in these small compartments that had desks and they had a mirror in front of them and they could see themselves using drugs. The supervisors could see their faces and make sure that they're okay. And in a moment when an overdose happens or began to happen, uh, the supervisors were able to step in quickly and give that person oxygen and if they required it, naloxone and reverse that overdose. You will find in all of these sites that exist all over the world that um, they um, rarely have people, uh, paramedics and first responders coming in to revive these people. This is mostly handled within the facility. And um, as these facilities have reported, they haven't experienced an overdose death. Yeah. All right. So uh, hopefully that gives some sense for our listeners of what these sites are like. Now, talking about the piece of legislation that was vetoed this past week, it would have opened the doors to pilot programs for uh, supervised injection sites in Los Angeles, San Francisco, as well as Oakland. Uh, Laura Thomas, again, with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, if the legislation had been passed and San Francisco had been able to move forward with its plans, what would that have meant for the city? It would have given the city a really clear green light to move forward with its existing plans uh, to add these services in a number of locations around the city. Uh, San Francisco has been working on this um, for years. We had a task force in 2017 that developed a set of recommendations around how these services should be operated, what kind of community consultation, who should be involved, all that sort of thing. So San Francisco uh, has been ready to move forward with this. Um, The city purchased a building uh, last year um, with the intention of operating these sites. So uh, San Francisco has been ready to go. And I Possibly even more importantly, San Francisco has been really clear about the need and the urgency to add these services. We've seen overdose fatalities really skyrocket, um, particularly during COVID. And we're now losing around two people a day Mm. here in San Francisco uh, because of overdose. Yeah, the statistic that I saw is that in California in 2021, 7,000 Californians, nearly 7,000 Californians died to opioid overdose deaths. So uh, from your perspective, Laura Thomas, uh, a disappointing veto. Incredibly, incredibly disappointing. It's, you know, as you just said, the overdose crisis is uh, not only causing a huge loss of life here in California, but it's the numbers are just going up and up. And the fact that the governor 
uh, chose not to use one of the available tools that we could be using. Um, we just, we need to be doing everything that we can to prevent overdose deaths. And that includes getting more naloxone out, making substance use treatment more accessible. And in particular in the hard hit urban areas, that means adding supervised consumption services. So it's, you know, it's incredibly disappointing. Um, it's all the more disappointing because, you know, what the governor said in his veto message was that he didn't think San Francisco and his uh, plans were sufficient, but he doesn't know what our plans are. No one in the state asked us what our plans are. We gave them enormous amounts of information about the research, and they chose to ignore all of that. Yeah, uh, definitely a, a lot of frustration on uh, that front. But as we alluded to a little bit earlier uh, in the program, there is some possibility of San Francisco moving forward on its own. It's been reported that city attorney David Chu said that uh, he still supports allowing nonprofits uh, to move forward anyway, kind of uh, following the model of what's been going on in New York City, which we'll talk a little bit more uh, about later. And uh, Laura Thomas, your nonprofit is one of those that has expressed an interest. So tell us uh, at this point, what are the possibilities for moving forward? Yeah, so the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, where I work, we have a long history of providing harm reduction, syringe access and overdose prevention services, as well as providing substance use treatment. And, uh, you know, our, our mission around achieving health justice and addressing HIV and hepatitis C transmissions uh, led us to want to add these services to our existing uh, continuum of services. So we've been talking about this uh, for years. Our board has been engaged um, and we're very interested in adding these services to what we're already providing. And we feel like we have the um, the skill set and uh, expertise to be able to do this. But you've been making the point that uh, really not possible to do it on your own. Exactly. This is something that we don't have. Uh, we don't have funding for at the moment. We don't have a location to provide these services. And one of the things that we really need as an organization is the kind of legal support from the city that the city attorney now seems to be offering. All right. Well, I want to remind anybody who might just be joining us that this is KCBS in depth. Your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today we are talking about safe injection sites. What is the future of this harm reduction tool in the wake of Governor Gavin Newsom's veto shooting down legislation that would have opened the doors to legal safe injection sites in San Francisco, Oakland, and Los Angeles. We're getting the perspective from Laura Thomas, who we just heard a second ago. She is the director of HIV and harm reduction policy at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Also speaking with Washington Post staff writer Merrill Cornfield. So, Merrill, turning things back over to you, as we mentioned at the top, you were one of the very first reporters to tour the uh, first legal safe injection site in New York City. Tell us a little bit about what you saw. This was back in November of last year, correct? That's right, which was soon after it had opened. Um, in the first three months that it has been, op those two sites in New York City have been open. Uh, they've halted more than 150 overdoses out of nine over 9,000 visits. 
one thing of note about this site, uh, the one that I went to in particular, um, was that it had previously served as a sort of services center for people before. Um, they could come in, find access to treatment, learn about um, other services that were open to them, get naloxone and safe supplies. And what would happen before this was sanctioned was people would go into the bathrooms and use drugs and behind a solid door, there's no way to save that life. And the people working in that facility told me how frustrating it was to be there where they couldn't stop a death from happening, um, it, even though they knew how they had the naloxone and oxygen to do that. Um, they would try to save a life if they could, if they noticed someone was waiting in the bathroom for too long. But when they turned this site into the supervised consumption site that it is now, it was revolutionary for the people that worked there. They describe how they could immediately respond to someone who's overdosing. And that time that they got there to that overdose is critical because they were able to help people come back from what can be a life altering um, and deadly experience. Yeah. And um, Meryl Cornfield, so you mentioned that the people working at this safe injection site, uh, for them, it was revolutionary. Anything else come out of that experience? I mean, at this point, is this considered to be a successful experiment? Too early to say still? The people that operate these sites would say it's been a huge success. They've had 800 people enroll to participate in the program. So it's obviously successful in terms of participation and uh, they've reversed overdoses. From a broader drug policy perspective, I've talked to people on both sides of the aisle who on one side have said that, you know, any life that can be saved, it's worth saving. And from another perspective, looking at the resources that these sites take, some drug policy experts have talked about how the importance of addressing demand and supply, for instance, getting um, more treatment out options out there, um, expanding treatment in places that really need it like jails and prisons, operating more programs that bring awareness to fentanyl. And um, while there's so many different um, solutions and um, discussions going on about, you know, what is the most, the best drug policy, these organizers that are operate, operating these supervised consumption sites are moving forward with their plans because they, um, you know, as I said earlier, um, believe that this is, it's success if they're saving lives. Yeah, well, that is an interesting set of points that you raised there, Meryl Cornfield. And uh, I actually had some of those questions myself. And before this conversation, I had a chance to go over them with a researcher who studies the outcomes of safe injection sites. So up next, uh, we're actually going to be taking a brief interlude in our conversation to hear about what the experience of safe consumption sites in other countries might have to teach us here. The uh, first important thing to keep in mind in all this is that when you look abroad, there are actually already quite a few programs up and running. There are 130 of these, uh, at least, operating in um, you know a dozen or so countries. Bo Kilmer, who directs the Drug Policy Research Center with RAND, meaning that we have quite a bit of research to draw on. And what that research is showing so far? There's no evidence that opening up a supervised consumption site increases crime in the neighborhood. If anything, there are a couple studies which have suggested that it may actually decrease crime. That finding, of course, an answer to one of the main objections raised against safe consumption sites. 
But in other areas, the evidence is less clear. In particular, it would be really nice to know that these programs are not just preventing individual overdose deaths, but that they're in fact reducing the total number of drug overdoses in a given community. And that's not as clear-cut as it may seem, because more than likely, someone addicted to drugs isn't only going to be using at the safe injection site. I mean, definitely when someone is being supervised and they overdose and, and then someone intervenes with oxygen or with naloxone, you know, that is, you know, you know, helping to save that person's life. But whether or not in the aggregate, this leads to a net reduction in the total number of people who kind of die in the community. That's where there have only been a few studies on this. Those studies do show some promise, but he says we really want to know more. And that's why he's hoping if safe injection sites are adopted in San Francisco or other cities, there will be a strong research component in place to really check in and see how things are going. Take it all together, and he says at the end of the day... There's little doubt in my mind that a supervised consumption site would pass the benefit-cost test and that it would accrue more benefits for society than it would cost, but that's not the measure we want to use. Now, for a particular community, you need to step back and consider, okay, given, you know, if my particular goal is to reduce overdose deaths or reduce disease, you know, which intervention or which set of interventions is going to kind of produce the most bang for the buck? And at this point, we don't have um, the evidence and enough evidence on supervised consumption sites to really answer that question. And we're only going to get that if we actually open some up and do some rigorous evaluation. And that once again was Bo Kilmers, who directs the Drug Policy Research Center with RAND. Uh, bringing back into the conversation now uh, Laura Thomas with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, as well as uh, Meryl Cornfield with the Washington Post. Uh, uh, Laura Thomas, so, you know, we speaking to this theme that's coming up a couple of times in this conversation of where does it make sense most to put our resources? A couple of the other interventions that uh, he mentioned when I spoke with him that could be useful, you know, things like needle exchanges, things like uh, drug treatments, making more drug treatment available, uh, additional services. There's a lot of different things that we can do. Where do safe injection sites fit into that mix? Why, in your view, is it something that really does deserve support and attention? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a question worth asking. And for me, one of the really compelling things about supervised consumption services is that they are they are a way to engage with people and link them into services. One of the things that I've heard from staff at uh, the New York sites is that pretty much everybody who comes into that site has been to treatment previously. And so, you know, the fact that our substance use treatment system in this country is not very effective often. It's often based in um, non-evidence-based um, approaches. It's often punitive. Um, it's often expensive. It's often um, unwelcoming. It's often not accessible to people because of uh, language or disability or their health conditions or gender. Um, you know, we absolutely need to vastly improve our substance use treatment continuum in this country. And uh, there's no question in my mind that, that we can't do better with treatment. The challenge though is, first of all, we need to keep people alive um, for those treatment options to, to be effective and to work for them. 
And we need to have ways to connect people to those services. It's one of the things that we do in our program is we connect people to um, medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, we connect people to contingency management for methamphetamine use. If we didn't have our syringe access programs, it would be that much harder to find the people who most want to be in those programs. So, um, you know, I see supervised consumption services as a key part of helping people access recovery and recovery supports and treatment when they want that. Um, it's not at all to me an either or. Either mm. we fund more treatment or we fund supervised consumption services. It, it, there's there's no reason why we're making those kinds of choices in a in a country with the kind of resources that we have. We can do both. Yeah. And just to get your reaction to another commonly heard criticism to safe injection sites, that being that in some way they encourage drug use or even if they don't encourage drug use, it's just unseemly to have government funding or government participation in any form in drug use, whether it's setting up the site or simply making it uh, more easier uh, or, or comfortable to take uh, a, a, an illegal substance, there's a lot of people that just feels uncomfortable having any kind of involvement with that activity whatsoever. Uh, what's your perspective on that? You know, I recognize that people may feel uncomfortable, but, you know, honestly, I don't care. <laughs> I, hmm. I, you know, what I'm concerned about is is saving people's lives and keeping people healthy. And I recognize that, you know, in this country, we're taught so many inaccurate and incorrect things about drugs and about people who use drugs. Uh, it, you know, the, the war on drugs as a system of racial control has been underway for decades. And a lot of us have absorbed some really awful stereotypes and understandings about people who use drugs. We also may have a person in our family or in our personal circles who um, hurt us or, or cause problems because of their substance use disorder. But those are not things to base policy on. Those are not things to make these large scale decisions on because you know, you're mad at someone in your family because of their drug use. That's not a basis for saying we can't have these programs that have been proven. I mean, you just heard Bo talking about all the evidence about about the effectiveness of these programs. So, you know, I don't really care what's unseemly. Um, I care about people who use drugs and I want them to stay alive. Yeah, well, certainly, as you say right there, the, the stakes of this couldn't be higher. Um, just once again, for anybody just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth. Today we are talking about safe injection sites, what the future of this intervention might be. Um, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to get a broader sense of not just what's going on in the Bay Area or just in California, but uh, nationally, how this debate is playing out and uh, bringing Washington, Washington Post reporter Meryl Cornfield back into the conversation. I know that that's something that you have been focusing on. Uh, give us a sense of where we should expect safe injection sites to come into play in other states at this moment. The first thing to think about is if Newsom had signed that bill, this statewide program would have been the largest in the nation. Um, it would have been historic, and um, there's really nothing that compares to that. Overall, nationwide, New York has gone the farthest. They have two sites open. Rhode Island, um, in, in Rhode Island, the governor signed their law that would have created a pilot program similar to California's. 
in the summer of 2021, but there's still a question of where those facilities will be. And in Philly, the organizers of Safe House, which is the organization behind the effort there, are still in talks with the DOJ. And the latest that we heard from the Justice Department is that uh, they're, quote, evaluating um, these facilities, which is a drastic change from the previous DOJ position under the Trump administration, which had sought to block the facility in court, arguing that uh, it would have violated a federal law known as the um, Crack House Statute. One thing of note about that statute is that one of the sponsors of it was President Biden. Mm. So uh, when it comes to what is going to happen with our federal policy, I've, I've asked this question of drug policy experts and um, they're hesitant. Uh, they, they do say that um, Biden's administration seems to be more willing, but um, that his so far his priority uh, among his priorities, this ranks pretty low. Yeah. And well, bringing up the political dimension of all of this, it has long been speculated that Governor Newsom holds national political aspirations, perhaps presidential political aspirations. And however popular safe injection sites might be in San Francisco, the issue plays very differently elsewhere in the country. And again, this is speculation. We haven't really gotten a full uh, accounting of the governor's considerations here, but it's not impossible to imagine an astute political actor weighing those political ramifications of being the governor that signed off on safe injection site legislation as maybe hurting your national chances. So uh, there does definitely seem to be a, a, a political uh, dimension to this, uh, Merrill Cornfield. How do you see that playing out in California and beyond? Well, as we saw, um, there was a um, effort by the Biden administration to give more money to harm reductionists. And um, we saw the GOP reaction to that they focused on an aspect of the money um, that they said was going to go to crack pipes. Um, and there was huge outrage over that, really just an effort to stir up the base. And I think we're going to continue to see more of that. The latest I've been tracking is reaction from Republican lawmakers to this new trend of rainbow fentanyl. It's a multicolored fentanyl press pill that I've seen GOP lawmakers use um, as a reason to, um, quote, close the borders. So I'd say that this is going to just continue to be a, po- a talking point and something that Republicans will use to um, stir up efforts to uh, block Democrats like this. All right. Well, I'm going to give the closing word now to Laura Thomas. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the challenges of Uh, making a safe injection site happen at this point uh, without further support from the city. But I guess just uh, closing thoughts from you, where do you think this is headed right now? Are are, are you hopeful that you'll still find a way to move forward? I am. I'm um, I'm still optimistic that we're going to make this happen. You know, the the evidence is very clear that these programs work and the overdose crisis is just overwhelming in places like San Francisco right now. And I feel like we have a moral imperative to move forward and uh, do everything that we can to be effective in, in saving people's lives. Um, you know, like many people, I've lost loved ones to overdose. And that's part of what keeps me 
doing this work is wanting, not wanting anyone else and any other families um, to lose people uh, the way that I have. So it's, um, you know, I, I do this work out of love uh, um, for my community and um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to make this happen soon. All right. Well, that's a perfect note to end it on. And we are going to thank both of our guests for joining us and sharing their thoughts today. We have just been hearing from Laura Thomas, once again, the Director of HIV and Harm Reduction Policy at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Laura Thomas, thanks so much. Thank you. Also been hearing from Washington Post staff writer Meryl Cornfield. Meryl Cornfield, thanks to you as well. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe. Be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 